Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. John, for leading us in prayer this morning. Uh, for those of you remaining in the sanctuary this morning and not going to Children's Church with Mr. Brandon and Miss Madison back there, perhaps you have seen the bumper sticker that says, Work is for people who don't know how to fish. There's another version of that that says work is for people who don't know how to golf. Still, there's another one that says all I want is less to do, more time to do it, and higher pay for not getting it done. Even more extreme, I'm on my way to work. Please kill me. Or this isn't an office. It's hell with fluorescent lighting. Certainly not the healthiest attitudes that one could have about work. And perhaps you don't share any of these sentiments, but you do live in a culture that has adopted a slogan that is so widely accepted, we recognize it simply by its abbreviation. T-G-I-F. Thank God it's Friday. This expression of some kind of collective relief that we can escape the drudgery of our work through the week. But is this how we should think about work as Christians? In anticipation of our equip groups that will be starting the week of September the 10th, where we will be reading and discussing a book by Dan Doriani called Work That Makes a Difference, I want us to consider a biblical view of work this morning. And perhaps one of the first things we could say is the church has tended to focus at times exclusively on equipping Christians to work inside the church in the church's ministry, and we have oftentimes neglected to equip people to work in the world. So, for example, an author named William Dale, who was a successful sales manager for a major steel company, wrote a number of decades ago, so I hope this isn't as true today as it was when he wrote these words, but he said this, this was his experience, in the almost 30 years of my professional career, My church has never once suggested that there be any type of accounting of my on-the-job ministry to others, nor has it ever asked if I needed any kind of support in what I was doing. There has never been an inquiry into the types of ethical decisions I must face or whether I seek to communicate my faith to my coworkers. I have never been in a congregation where there was any type of public affirmation of a ministry in my career. In short, I must conclude that my church really doesn't have the least interest in whether or how I minister in my daily work. Well, in an attempt to ensure that you will not draw that conclusion, at New Life, we're offering our equip groups this fall, and we're considering a biblical view of work this morning from Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at a number of passages in Genesis. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Genesis chapter 3. Again, looking at verses 17 through 19, of course, Genesis 3 is the account of Adam and Eve's fall into sin with their disobedience of God's word, which plunged themselves, the whole of humanity, and the created order into a state of sin and misery. Again, we're looking just at God's words to Adam this morning, beginning in verse 17. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to find a paperback Bible underneath one of the seats in front of you. Our text is found on page 2 in those paperback Bibles, but if you're able, I invite you now to stand for the reading of God's Word. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. And to Adam, God said, 
Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for your dust, and to dust you shall return. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. And so, a biblical view of work. First thing that we can say is that a biblical view of work recognizes that our work is vexing. Our work is vexing. And these verses right here in Genesis chapter 3 that we just read explain why our work is vexing. All of the negative attitudes and sentiments that our culture has about work and those sentiments that reside even in our own hearts make sense in light of what we're reading here in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the joy and peace that characterized all of creation was shattered. And it ruined relationships and it negatively impacted our work. Because we read here that thorns and thistles now spring up from the ground. And so we now are carrying out our work and our labors in a fallen and cursed environment where there is pain, where there is toil, and where there is exhaustion. Now these thorns and thistles that we read about in verse 18 are literal thorns and thistles. They're growing up from the literal material physical ground. And we see thorns and thistles still today in the ground. So they're literal But there are also figurative thorns and thistles as well. Because let's just be honest. That sometimes the biggest thorns and thistles that we face as we carry out our work and our labor are other people. Sinful people that are around us. Perhaps your supervisor is evil. Like Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. Or perhaps your supervisor is just miserly. Like Ebenezer Scrooge from Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Or maybe your supervisor is simply incompetent and clueless, like Michael Scott from The Office. Or maybe the people who work for you, or maybe the people that you work with, are just lazy, like George Costanza, a character in Seinfeld, who once built a bed underneath his desk at work in order to allow him to sleep while he was on the job. Or perhaps this morning you're a student and you're thinking about your teacher as a supervisor and perhaps your teacher is mean like Dolores Umbridge from the Harry Potter books and the movies. It's possible that some of you have no idea who any of these people are. And that's perfectly okay because you don't have to go to this extreme and you don't have to refer to these people because all of us know the people around us can be demanding, they can be ungrateful and impatient and irresponsible and self-centered. And we know that the reality of sin disrupts the unity and teamwork that should characterize cooperation within our work. And we know that sin breeds competition and envy and gossip, and it leads to the abuse of authority by those who have it and the undermining of authority among those who don't have it. People make our work and our labor hard. They make it difficult. But in saying that, It's important to point out that we need to remember that you can be a thorn and thistle for other people as well because our sin causes us to want to be served more than to want to serve. And our sin inclines us to always be thinking that we're doing more work than we should be doing while other people are doing less work than they should be doing. That's what we're tempted to conclude. And so 
our work is vexing. But our work is vexing not just because of ourselves or other people or the sinfulness of other people or our own hearts. Work is vexing because of work itself. Work itself is vexing because the cursed ground makes work difficult and tedious and slow. Under the curse, we have to toil to build and to create physically and mentally. It's difficult and toilsome to build and to create. And because under the curse, things tend to decay, things tend to fall apart, we're also taken up not only with the difficulty of building and creating things, but then having to maintain them, to repair them. There's constant cleansing that has to be done and fixing that has to be done. So there's a sense in which the laundry and the dishes and the roads and the landscaping and the home, those things are never actually done. A sense of accomplishment is elusive to us. And so we strive and we sweat physically and mentally, but we do so also in bodies that are impacted by the curse. And so our bodies grow tired and fatigued, and we grow discouraged at the demands of work and how little our work seems to have to show for it with all the toil that we give to it. And so we begin to think that our work is futile and it's pointless. We wonder if it has any meaning or lasting value. And this is actually something that's expressed in the Bible itself in the book of Ecclesiastes. We read in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, the author says this, So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. Why is he despairing? He gives his heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, all this work, all this toil. And he asks, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. There's that precise word in our English Bibles. Work is a vexation. And given this vexation, we're tempted to just take a step back, check out, become lackluster, not give our best efforts, cut corners. And if we're actually in paid employment, we might be tempted to do just enough to not get fired, just enough to keep earning that paycheck. But when we find ourselves in a culture that has difficulty finding meaning and purpose in work, then what we have is a widespread decline in quality of work, efficiency of work, and in student or a service-oriented approach to work. But although our work can sometimes feel like it's meaningless, it's not meaningless. And although work is significantly impacted by sin and the curse, our work is not a result of sin. Work is not a result of sin. We read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, which is before the fall. This is before chapter 3. We're going one chapter back to verse 15 of Genesis chapter 2. We read there that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Work is not a part of the curse. Work is part of Eden's blessings. Work is part of Eden's blessings before the fall. And even after the fall, our work is not cursed. If you look at our text in Genesis chapter 3, it's the ground that is cursed. Work is not cursed. God does not curse our work. And because God doesn't curse our work, we shouldn't curse our work either. We can acknowledge with a biblical view of work that our work is vexing, but it's not meaningless. In fact, a biblical view of work also recognizes that our work is valuable. 
Our work is valuable. Notice with me in verse 17 that even though pain is now introduced into the created order, God says to Adam, you shall eat of the ground. And despite the thorns and thistles that will spring up, according to verse 18, verse 18 also says, you shall eat the plants of the field. And in verse 19, yes, there'll be sweat and toil by the sweat of your face or by the sweat of your brow, some translations use. That is true, but you will eat bread. In other words, our work will yield fruit. Our work will still yield fruit, perhaps much more modest than we, than we would like, and always accompanied with a measure of toil and pain because of sin. But the truth is our work has concrete, practical value, and it can give us a sense of satisfaction and a sense of meaningful productivity. Now, let me say something at this point. I want to be very clear. When you hear me say work, don't hear job. Work and labor encompasses far more than paid employment. I'm not talking strictly here about paid employment or having a job. If I could paraphrase Helen Mitchell, who is the director of the Talbot Center for Faith, Work, and Economics at Biola University, she says that work is anything that provides something of value for others. Work is anything that provides something of value for others. So if you're a stay-at-home parent, raising kids and managing the affairs of the house, if you're homeschooling your children, if you are retired but invested in relationships in which you encourage others, if you're retired and you're volunteering either at church or somewhere in the community, if you're a student in a season of preparation for future work, or you may have full-time employment, job in which you're being compensated for, or you're in an established career. Whatever it is, paid or unpaid, your work is valuable, and you are making important contributions. And your work is valuable not so long as it's connected to some kind of formal ministry of the church. It's not just valuable because you're serving the church in some capacity. Other work is valuable as well. A biblical view of work sees all legitimate labor as a form of ministry, and so your ordinary, everyday ministry, Monday through Saturday, whether that's paid or unpaid labor or work, is not taking you away from ministry. It's part of ministry. That's part of your ministry. By all means, be involved in the ministry of the church, the formal ministries of the church, but other work has value as well. But you may struggle by thinking, yeah, but my work doesn't have eternal value. So, maybe designing homes, or building homes, or repairing homes, or working on roads, building roads, making parts, doing landscape, fixing machinery, working on computers, or fixing computers. It doesn't, it doesn't feel eternal to you. Okay, but that doesn't mean that that work doesn't have value, because temporal work has real value, even if it doesn't have eternal value. Things that are temporal still have real value unless you're willing to conclude that Jesus squandered and wasted the first 30 years of his life doing carpentry work before he began his formal ministry later in life. I'm not willing to conclude that because I think there are important theological implications if we think that Jesus squandered and wasted 30 years of his life doing the work of a carpenter of which I'm not sure we have anything lasting in the world that he worked on. If we do, we don't know what it is. 
But that work still had value, even though it may have been temporary. That work was still pleasing to his father. You still might have a nagging feeling that, yeah, but my, my work isn't very spiritual. My work is connected to things like food and clothing or just cut people's hair. There's nothing spiritual about that. Well, remember that God created us as embodied creatures with physical and material needs. And Jesus reminds us in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount that our Father in heaven knows about those needs and he cares about those needs. So let's not try to be more spiritual than God by thinking if we work in areas of food and clothing and those kinds of things that we're not doing valuable work. And the one thing that we have to keep in mind is we never know entirely how God is using or will use our labors. We're never entirely clear about those things. Just imagine with me this morning that there is a Christian man and he works at a metal factory and he has concluded that his job means relatively nothing in the big scheme of what God is doing in his kingdom. And so he despises his work because he sees no value in it. But imagine that one of these things that this metal factory does is they send sheets of metal off to a variety of places, and one of those places happens to be in places where they put together printing presses. And sometimes these printing presses print Bibles. And those Bibles that are printed are taken by missionaries to unreached people groups. And as those missionaries take those Bibles to unreached people groups, some of those unreached people put their faith in Jesus for salvation and obtain eternal life in His name by grace through faith. In part, because that guy at that factory is doing his job. That work is valuable. Or think about it like this. The next time that you need surgery, we tend to intuitively recognize that doctors and surgeons, that work is valuable. But remember that on the day of your procedure, your surgeon has to arrive at work with reliable transportation. It was put together by engineers and people in automotive plants, and was serviced by garage mechanics. And when she arrives for your surgery, she enters into a room that was cleaned by janitors. And she's going to be using special lamps so she can see during that surgery that she didn't design, she didn't develop. She's going to rely on surgical tools and instruments also that she didn't invent herself. And during that surgery, she's going to be using information and skills that she acquired by a professor that taught her those things in college. And the reason she was able, in part, to go to college and acquire that information is because far earlier in her life, someone came alongside her and taught her how to read. All that's going in to your surgery. And that's just scratching the surface. It barely scratches the surface. Because after your surgery, she's going to entrust you to a team of nurses, which have its own network of connections there. And those nurses are going to administer medications that for years were developed by researchers in labs, chemists, pharmacists. But you're probably not going to need surgery today. I hope you're not going to need surgery today. But you're going to need to eat today. And one of the things that Jesus teaches us to pray is to ask our Father for daily bread. And how does God ordinarily answer your prayers for daily bread? Well, He doesn't typically just drop food down from the sky. Typically, He uses or very ordinary means to answer that prayer in order to allow you to have a bowl of cereal for breakfast. But how does your bowl of cereal get on your table? Well, again, think of everybody that has to be involved in that. There's a farmer who plants and sows and harvests. 
And then there's people who design farming equipment and fix farming equipment. There's people who work at a cereal factory. There's tons of truck drivers who transport that cereal to all kinds of places. And there's people who have to provide diesel fuel for those truck drivers. And there's people at the grocery store who have to unload that truck. And then there's somebody who has to actually stock the groceries, which I did for a really long time when I was in college. And then there has to be a cashier to allow you to buy that. And if you don't go to the cashier and you use the self-checkout, somebody has to design that self-checkout in order for you to buy that cereal, go home, put it on your table. And that's just naming some of the people involved in that. We haven't even mentioned the fact that when you get home and you have your bowl of cereal on the table, now you need some milk. So there's even more people involved in that. And so thinking of work this way is why Martin Luther concluded that while it's true that God doesn't need my good works, my neighbor does. My neighbor does need my good works. And so the truth is that God answers many a prayer through ordinary work and labor. Your work and my work. God is answering the prayers of those around us. And so our work is valuable. And it's not valuable just because it's a way to pay your bills, to do other things. And it's valuable not just because it allows you to make money and save money and accrue wealth. And its value can't be determined by how much you actually are getting paid for it if you're getting paid nothing for it. Because there's very important, significant work that you're not compensated for in a monetary fashion. At the end of the day, the bottom line is this, that in a biblical view of work, work is valuable because it's an important way that you love and you serve your neighbor. Work is one of the important ways that you love and you serve your neighbor, whether that work is paid or unpaid. But as a way that we love our neighbor, our work is not something that just is merely pragmatically valuable, rendering something useful for other people. Our work is also actually virtuous. As a way of loving our neighbors, our work is virtuous because love is a moral issue. It's a moral command in Scripture. And so if work is an expression of love, it makes it something that's morally virtuous. But even before that, even before we talk about love and work as virtuous because of love, we can say that work is virtuous because it's godly. It's literally God-like to work, to build, to create is God-like. Our work reflects something of the character of our God because one of the first things the Bible tells us about God is that He works. Three times in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. So we're going to go back just a little bit further. We started Genesis 3, went back to 2.15. Now we're back really to the end of the creation narrative that began in chapter 1. There's not a really good chapter division here. So this really concludes the creation narrative that started in chapter 1. It concludes this way three times. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, God's work of creation is referred to as the work He had done. The work that God did was creation. Creation was a kind of work. So one of the first things we're told about God is, is that He works. And when we do work in ways that bring order from disorder, like He does in creation, and when we do work that brings light, the light of knowledge and understanding to dispel the darkness of ignorance and superstition, to bring the light of truth to bear. And when we do work that brings righteousness where there's evil and healing where there's brokenness, we are reflecting the image of our Creator God when we do that work. Our work is virtuous. But it is also an expression of our love for neighbor, and it's virtuous for that reason. But even before that, it's not first an expression of our love for neighbor. 
Our work is first an expression of our love for God who calls us to work. The word vocation, sometimes used synonymously for work or a career, a vocation comes from a Latin root meaning to call. And God is the one who calls in a vocation. God is the one who calls us to our various stations in life and he calls us to specific work. Even if that work happens to be the work of a student, whether that's in grade school or middle school or high school or college or even beyond, God is the one calling us to our labors and to our work. And seeing our work as a divine calling from God transforms the way we think about it, transforms the way we go about doing it, because now our work becomes a demonstration of our obedience to the God who calls. It becomes an expression of our love and devotion and faithfulness, and it becomes an act of worship. Our work is something that we render unto God as our worship because He's the one who calls us. And because we're doing it ultimately for Him, we're able to work faithfully and labor faithfully for those who seem to be unworthy of the work that we're doing because ultimately we're not working for them. We're not ultimately working even for ourselves. We're ultimately working for God who calls us. We're serving Him and loving Him ultimately in our work even as our work is a demonstration of love for others. And this is exactly what Paul stresses in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, when he writes this, Whatever you do, work heartily. Now let that language sink in. Whatever you do, work heartily. Work hard at it. Work well at it. Why? As for the Lord and not men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, So your ultimate compensation doesn't come horizontally, it comes vertically. But then he ends with this, you're serving the Lord Christ. Why should you work hardly at whatever you're doing? Because ultimately you're serving the Lord Christ. And because we're serving Jesus, we'll pursue excellence in our work. We don't want our work to be mediocre because we're offering it unto the Lord. Here's my mediocre half-hearted work, Lord. No, a biblical view of work understands that we're ultimately serving Jesus in our callings. And so I want to strive for excellence. Dorothy Sayers, who's a Christian author, wrote a superb essay called Why Work? You can access it online. But she's talking about work from a Christian perspective. And this is what she writes. It's a number of years ago, but she writes this. The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. That's it. Just don't be a troublemaker and make it a church on Sunday. She says what the church should be telling him is this, that the first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Be faithful in your calling and strive for excellence. Which reminds us that a biblical view of work understands the importance of not just witnessing at our work, during our labor, but also witnessing in our work. By all means, share the gospel. Tell people about the gospel at your work when it's appropriate to do that. But it's not just that. Be a faithful witness in your work, striving and seeking for excellence in work and study because you're ultimately offering it to the God who calls. See, it's this vertical dimension that changes the way we think about our labor, changes the way that we carry out our labor. There's a vertical component to it. We can think about it and summarize it this way. Where the world seeks self-fulfillment in work and labor, the Christian aims to love and serve neighbor. Where the world is seeking personal gain, the 
Christian seeks God's glory. Where the world sees work as just a job to do, a task to get done, the Christian sees a divine calling. And where the world will measure success by wealth that's accrued, by status, by earthly recognition, the Christian will measure success in terms of faithfulness to God. This is what it means to have a biblical view of work, in summary. But having said all of that, it's really important for us to remember that first and foremost, we are not called by God to work. First and foremost, we are called to God to belong to Him as His children. In other words, we could say it like this. Our primary calling isn't to something, to a task, to something to be done, nor is it called to somewhere, to some kind of geographical region. No, our primary calling is to someone, to be in personal relationship with Jesus as Lord and Redeemer. That's the primary calling. We have to remember this as well. Our relationship is not something that we can secure or accomplish by our own works. We can't merit it. We can't earn it. We can't accomplish it by our work. Our relationship with Jesus is something that is secured and accomplished by Him and by His redemptive work on the cross where He loved us and gave Himself for us, where He gave up His life, where He died that we might have life, and where He bore the curse in the place of sinners that we might receive everlasting blessing. And we know that Jesus bore the curse because Galatians tells us, we heard already in our assurance of pardon, but we also know because in the Gospels, Jesus is presented to us standing before Pilate wearing a crown of thorns. Thorns are a result of the curse. And in a physical way, Jesus is bearing the curse by wearing a crown of thorns. Taking our sin upon himself, bearing the curse that instead of the curse, we might enjoy everlasting blessing if we look to him by faith. If you're here this morning and you're not in personal relationship with Jesus, if you haven't trusted him as your Lord, as your King, as your Savior, would you do so now? You can do that this morning. Give your heart and your life to him and know that what he confers upon you is the forgiveness of all of your sins and he gives you everlasting life and glory. In the new heavens, in the new earth, where there will be no more pain, where there will be no more death, where there will be no more toil, where there will be no more curse, because Jesus has conquered all of that for all those who look to him by faith. That can all be yours, by faith in him. But not only do you have that promise in the age to come, even now in this life, you can know meaning and purpose in every area of your life as you seek to honor him as the one who has redeemed you. And that includes in your work and in your labor. And you can know that your work and your labor in Christ Jesus is not in vain. He will use it to bless you, bless others, and glorify himself. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess that we often don't think about the privileges that we have to work and to labor and to be productive as the blessing that we should. That we often use it selfishly in our sinfulness. And so, Lord, where we need to repent, we repent. Give us soft and humble hearts. Help us to embrace the work and the labor that you give us to do as students and the various callings that you have in our lives, that we would do so faithfully, that we'd seek excellence so that others might be cared for, 
and that you might be honored and glorified as we yield these things unto you as an offering to you as our God who has called us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.